All right. <coughs> Happy Mother's Day, all our mommies out here. We are grateful for you. As I mentioned after the liturgy, honestly, I could say, you guys literally wear 10,000 different hats and have 10,000 different jobs, so we are extremely grateful. So we do honor you today. I hopefully you did get a rose uh, today as a, just a small token of thank you to all our mommies out there. You could probably agree with me on this statement. Trust is the backbone for anything to move forward. Trust is the backbone for anything to move forward. You get on a plane, maybe we, if we've gone on multiple flights, we don't think twice about it, but you ultimately trust the engineers who designed the plane. You ultimately trusted the person who screwed in all the bolts, right? You didn't think they just kind of did it half-heartedly. You trust that they screwed in all the way. You trust that the pilot is not someone who just, you know, watched some YouTube videos and learned, learned how to fly or, you know, did Microsoft uh, Flight Simulator and that's it. No, you trust that he went to school and he got his hours in and he did it. You, you, you agree that there has to be trust as the backbone in order for you to fly a plane. Relationships, and I know this might pull on different strings in our heart. Trust is the backbone for any type of relationship to move forward. And I know many of us have felt pain and hurt when that trust has been abused or broken. But for anything to move forward, trust has to be the backbone for it to move forward. And let me add this in here. The whole concept of prenuptials before a mar marriage. Statistically speaking, you don't have to believe me. Just statistics, you can look it up. I know I'm not good with statistics so far today, but this is true. Statistically speaking, those who move forward to move into marriage with a prenuptial have a three times higher risk for that marriage to dissolve. If you go into marriage, which is full trust, but just in case, you know, let's assign this thing. If you have in the back of your mind, which is, let's, let's face it, is selfishness. I'm wanting to protect myself. I will never forget. I'll ne I remember exactly where I was. On dental school, I'm sitting in the lab, and I, I remember him, I remember everything about this professor. And he came up to me. And I was married, I, I got married, we got married young. And, you know, he told me, he's like, you're married? He's like, did you sign something? Do you know that, you know, I know you're in debt now, with, but you know, once you become a dentist, if something happens, she gets half of your salary forever because she can say that she helped you get through dental school and all this kind of stuff. I was like, what? I, I mean, I couldn't believe what he was telling me. And he was trying to give me, like, out of his love for me, he was giving me life advice. And he's telling me, like, because my wife Sarah was working and I was a student. So he's saying, you know, she can come and get you and say that she owns that because she's the one that helped you get through. I, know, I couldn't believe it. But just statistically speaking, when you go into marriage with a prenuptial type of mentality, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because in order for marriage to thrive, there has to be a high level of intimacy, vulnerability, and trust in order to be fully known. Statistically speaking, independent of anyone's worldview, this brings the highest level of fulfillment in every capacity, including intimacy, sexually, physically, intellectually, spiritually, when there is this high level of trust in the marriage or in any type of relationship. You don't have to answer this out loud. Why do you go to your dentist? Like, you would say, oh, he's nice or she's nice, and you trust that dentist. I always want to ask you, what makes you trust that dentist? Like, you have no idea what we're, not we, not anymore. You have no idea what they're doing in your mouth. You have no idea, but somehow they put a smile on your face, they welcome you, they have a TV in the lobby, and all of a sudden you trust them. 
right? You have no, you're a hygienist too, but there's a trust. This is why you, you feel comfortable going to that dentist, but you have nothing of concrete substance of why you continue to go to that dentist. But anyway, that's a completely in, independent thing, but I always get curious why people trust dentists or hygienists so much. I mean, you don't know what to base it off of, I feel, but anyway. I guess so, yeah, maybe they're, they're more confident in their flossing than maybe, maybe that's why. <laughs> but they smile to you and, they, and they, they make you feel warm and welcome, and all of a sudden, you just open wide and you let them drill away. You have no idea what they're doing. If there is trust in a higher power, if there is trust that there is a higher being, if there is trust that you belong to something so much bigger, then it is easier to know that everything threads in together, the good and the bad, the thick and the thin and the highs and lows of life. It's easier to trust that if we put our trust that there is a higher being. It's easier for you to know your purpose and be driven in life if you know, if you trust there is a higher being. But if there's questions, if there is a higher being, it's harder for you to have clarity or even a drive for your purpose or your mission in this world. But if there is confidence in a higher being, then it's easier for me to move forward that I have a purpose and I'm here for a very intentional, specific reason. This is why the beauty of the Christian worldview is this higher deity came down for you and me in a concrete, tangible way. Here's another statement I think you would all agree on with me is this. A faith that cannot be questioned cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be questioned cannot be trusted. I, regardless of your background, I know some of you might have grown up in some type of church tradition where you couldn't question things. It was hard, there was no safe place for you to question your belief. And I get it. And so many people drift away from Christianity because they don't feel comfortable or they don't feel welcomed to question things. But the beauty of the Christian worldview, it, it's nothing we're chasing. It's nothing, something just in some random sacred book, and it's kind of like sacred and mysterious, and we don't, we just trust whatever's in those golden lettered, you know, red ink book, and we just kind of go with that. No, but we should question things. We should pursue. This will build the backbone of trust. And if we build the backbone of trust and knowing who God is and who Jesus is, then everything else falls into place from there. Come on, you get this just from any type of relationship-wise. If trust is not the backbone, then you're going to begin to question everything. You're going to start, I mean, you can't go anywhere in a, a, a healthy, vulnerable relationship unless trust is the backbone. One of my favorite books is a book titled Know the Faith. Know the Faith. And why I like this, because it's not a book book, but it's called a handbook. Because in it, you find different topics of like, What's the whole deal with communion? Like, what's the deal with that? Or, like, why icons? Or why incense? Or why priesthood all together? Like, some of those things about ancient Christianity that maybe we have questions about but don't even know where to begin. This handbook, you just look it up in the table of contents and you look it up, and it's going to give you concrete evidence from every aspect of theology, from Scripture, from the early church fathers, moving forward. So it's a beautiful, beautiful handbook. We just ordered, uh, I, th I think, a dozen copies for, at the connection table. For those who want, you can grab one, you know, um, just a, a donation to help us cover the cost and, and, and grab a book. I'm telling you, this is such a great book because I want you to question why you are interested in Jesus. 
you should question every aspect of it. Jesus, for crying out loud, invited so many people, and he told them, come and see. He told them, come and see. He met this woman at the well, and she was coming very vulnerable, open questions. Jesus invited her to take that next step. Philip had a close friend named Nathaniel, and Nathaniel was a skeptic, and Philip said, hey, come and see. I have questions myself, but let's go on this journey together. No one expects you or me to know everything, but at least we, this can be a safe place for us to question things and move forward. Is there a higher being? What gives me confidence in that? And if that is legit or not legit, what does that mean for me or how I make life decisions? Jesus told many skeptics, come and see. He invited the skeptics. He invited the questions. A faith that cannot be questioned, cannot be trusted. I, I, I should have rewrote this saying, anything that cannot be questioned cannot be trusted. We should feel comfortable and empowered to question everything and anything. Before I show you a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, we have four records of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one is very unique in their personality and style writing and perspective. I will share with you a passage from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. But before I share this with you, some of you have heard this 12 times, some of you have never heard this, but in either case, let's kind of come with this with a clean sheet. Don't look at this as the B-I-B-L-E right now, it is the Bible, but I want you to look at this as someone recording history, someone recording an encounter, someone recording a dialogue. Let this be our base as we move forward in reading this passage. Then Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is asking the disciples. They're out in the rural town of Caesarea Philippi, away from the noise and hustle bustle of the capital. And Jesus kind of pulls them aside and he says, hey, hey, what are people saying about me? We won't get into the whole reason why he called himself the sin of, Son of Man. That's a different topic. But he's, Jesus is asking, what are people around town saying about me? Like, what are they saying online that make this modern day? What are people saying online about me? What are they posting about me? What are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? They reply, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the disciples respond saying, people have no idea who you are, but people are thinking you must be like some type of prophet. Are you Elijah that came back? Are you like John the Baptist? Are you like, some people are, they, they know you're some type of like reverend, prophet, you know, God type of person, but they don't, really don't know who you are. So there's different rumors around town. People are whispering that you're Jeremiah. Some people are whispering X, Y, Z. So there's different rumors coming around town as far as who you are. Then Jesus shifts the conversation completely. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? And I'm sure there was a pause because it's easy to talk about theology and the church and the rites and things like that from a high level. It's easy to talk about this from an academic or historical perspective. Oh, should we be doing this? Or is this fasting? Are we fasting? It's easy to kind of get lost on all the high level stuff. Oh, should we? And I don't know. Like, and, we, and we just get lost talking at a head level. And then Jesus kind of, uh-uh. How about you? You've been following me for some quite some time now. Who am I to you? Of course, Peter, 
very verbal guy, speaks up first. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. There's so much to unpack from this. For Peter to immediately answer, saying, you are the anointed one, Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, you are the fulfillment of all these other messengers from God, you are the, you are the epitome of God in flesh coming to give us life, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God, because son of God was, was a common phrase in the political world and in other parts, no, but Peter says, you are the son of the living God. What if this is true? What if what Peter is saying is true? And, and don't just, like, give me the Sunday school answer. Yeah, yeah, it's true. What if what Peter says is true? When Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God, If that is true, if, if that is true, what impact does that have on us? Does that change anything? Is it nothing? Is it everything? What if this is true? I feel Peter knew it was true. I don't feel like he was just saying the right Sunday school answer. I felt like he knew in his heart, this is true. And I think that changed his life. Jesus responds to him. Jesus replied, happy are you, Simon. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He gives him a nice formal introduction, like basically saying his first and last name. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. Jesus basically telling him, this was not revealed by logic and paper and pen or academics. God, who transcends life and any limitations of it, has revealed this and has put this seed in your heart. God, who is self-revealing, has revealed to you that I am God in Abad. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Here's Jesus. Like, we can agree that the tens of thousands of versions of Christianity agree on this bold statement in which Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Everyone agrees on how that's interpreted and applied. But now it comes a little deviation. Where Jesus responds by saying, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock, all of Christianity has understood for, for 1,000 years, when Jesus says, on this rock, he's talking about the statement in which Peter made, that Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, uh, son, of, son of the living God. On this rock, on this statement, I will build my church. And this ain't no, like, institution. This ain't no limited organization. Man, this organism, this living body of the church in which is going to be established, the gates of Hades cannot overcome it. This will trample down serpents and scorpions in all darkness. 
what I will establish. And I'm sure Peter was all pumped up because of this. Because Peter, because Jesus empowered Peter and says, that statement you made, this will be the bedrock of the movement of the church. And nothing can overcome it. It will be in the world, but it will not be of the world. It will be countercultural, but it will go against the waves and darkness of this world that is of deception, that is temporal, but it will bring life, and people will be looking for life. Nothing will be able to overcome this one holy Catholic and apostolic Orthodox Church of God. This is the fullness of the church in which Jesus made it super clear and empowered Peter and the disciples with. As I mentioned earlier, I feel Peter believed what he was saying, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I feel that Peter believed what he was saying. But for those who know, Peter didn't have, like, the most um, hunky-dory type of life after this point where he kind of just skipped into the sunset and became a follower of Jesus and everything was smooth. No. He went through denying him. He went through questioning Jesus. After everything he saw with his own two eyeballs, after this conversation, we see Jesus kind of, we see Peter drift away from Jesus and kind of go one foot in, one foot out, start questioning things, denying him. So we see Peter going through all of this, but this becomes part of his story. And this is not the end of his story. But I feel Peter had a struggle of putting God in a box. If everything is good, if I'm winning in life, God is the best. But when things begin to fall apart, I want nothing to do with church. I want nothing to do with God. He, had, he made an attractive version of theology for himself. God, is a, God helps me win. He's the best prosperity gospel type of theology. But if God's not there, everything begins to fall apart. I want nothing to do with God. He put himself in a situation where he felt God is only there to help him win. But when things got rough, he began to drift away. Peter learned the hard way that being a follower of Jesus is independent of life circumstances. Because you, this always hits me so much. The early followers of Jesus understood the pain, trials, hardships, martyrdom, death that they were exposed to day in and day out. But they had this boldness and zeal to continue to live for Jesus and give their life for him. Independent of these circumstances. They went from skeptics to Jewish men and women to being all in, willing to give up everything. They had this zeal and boldness, which was divorced from any type of circumstance. They didn't look outside and, and say, oh, man, for real? James got, just got martyred? He got, he got killed? Uh, maybe we should just go back to being fishermen. They had this zeal. Nothing stopped them because they had a new definition of life in depth. But for us... We start questioning things, we start pausing things, we kind of one foot into being a follower of Jesus. But there was something so appealing, something so attractive about the first century church when, because such a wide array of people followed him and were willing to give up everything because they followed Jesus. Peter learned and he experienced and sat with love in a verb. Love personified. And I love that song that we just sang. I think the words were, O creator of love, I am returning. That's Peter's voice. That's Peter's story. O creator of love, I am returning. Because even through all his highs and lows in his story, 
He wanted to make sure all that was documented because that he knew this, is, this doesn't define me. Oh, yeah, I'm weak, but I'm defined because I belong to the king. And he made sure that was recorded. And he wanted to empower other Jesus followers into that same reality. He told a group of Jesus followers this in his epistle. He tells them, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And pause. Please do not just read this and, oh, this is the Bible and Bible language. Do you see yourself as being God's chosen possession? Do you see yourself belonging to royalty? And if that's not true, or if that is true, what impact does that have on our marriages and our life and how we make decisions and how we look at our own struggles and weakness? If that is true, what impact does that have? If it's not true, tell me why you want to say this is not true from someone who has been through so much of being a follower of Jesus. And he tells them, he's trying to empower them and elevate them because we get this. Don't we get this? When we get stuck in a rut because of our own struggles or we're just, we, we just get stuck mentally, emotionally, through trials, through hardships, we feel, man, I'll never be loved. I feel so far away from God if he is really listening to me. And we feel I can't come back to him. Peter gets that. He experienced that. He tasted that. He lived that. But now he's pouring out his guts to other Jesus followers. He's pouring out his guts to you and me. You are a chosen people. You are royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If this is true for you, what impact does that have? And if that is not true, then you can ignore me. And tell me why you feel this is not true. But he lived this out, and he's telling you and me, he has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is the church. This is Jesus. I want to end you with this. As I mentioned, the church was so attractive in the first few centuries, and, and, and it just captured the attention of so many people of seeing Jesus of Nazareth transcending and redefining life and death, that such a wide array of people became interested in the church. A fourth century bishop by the name of St. John Chrysostom said these words. God loves us more than a father mother, friend, or any else could love, and even more than we are able to love ourselves. How beautiful is that? That God loves you more than any other limited definition we have of love, and then more than you love yourself, more than you give of yourself, more than you love yourself, there is someone who loves you more than you can even understand and has a mission for you. You are never too far away from him. As we prayed in the song, O creator of love, I am returning to you. When Jesus looks at you and me and he asks, who do you say that I am? I hope it's not just a head answer. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. Peter lived that out. 
through his own struggles. And we're invited to live that out in our own struggles as well. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, you love us more than we can ever understand. We might drift away from you, but you never abandon us. Lord, we want to hold on to the words of St. Peter, declaring that you are the King, the Son of the living God. We want to hold on to the words in which he empowers early Christian followers, that we are your chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation because you have called us out of darkness into your light. Lord, I pray that this is not just text, that I pray that this is something we live out in our relationships, our own personal struggles, in our careers, in every capacity. Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We will wrap up this series next week as we will be talking about church history. We'll talk about church history next week. Thank you, guys.